This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. So I am super excited to introduce our guest today. Professor Mark Belmer is a research scientist at Google Research, an adjunct professor at McGill University, and a Canada CIFAR AI chair. Thanks so much for joining us today, Professor Belmer. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here today. So how do you describe your area of focus? Right. So that's a, that's a great uh, question to start. Uh, I'm a reinforcement learning researcher. So really, I care about all things reinforcement learning. But if I want to narrow it down a little bit, I'd say I care about um, two things primarily. The first one, I would say, is the problem of representation learning or learning representations. And the other problem is the problem of exploration. And the way I think of these two problems is basically, you know, how do we how do we think or understand how any intelligent agent uh, describes in their brain or in their machines what they know? And then uh, how do they behave or how do they act on the basis of that knowledge? And uh, in some sense, you know, to me, this is really at the core of uh, artificial intelligence, especially when we think about agents and reinforcement learning. Um, and as humans, we're incredibly good at this. Um, so let me give you an example. When, uh, when I've moved to a new city in the past, uh, at first, uh, you know, none of the streets, none of the signs, none of the landmarks are, uh, were known to me. Uh, and so, so what do we do? Well, you know, at first we, uh, we start exploring the, 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 maybe the neighborhood, looking for a grocery store, looking for a pub, looking for a park. And, and we're very good uh, in general at, uh, at sort of making this mental map very quickly from very few experiences of samples and, and knowing where to go next. You know, if I found a grocery store, I'm not going to go look for more grocery stores, uh, even though there might be a better one just around the corner. So can you tell us a bit about your path in coming to RL? How did you end up in RL? I've been excited about reinforcement learning uh, since my early days as an undergraduate student. And actually before then, uh, I can sort of date this back to, uh, to my teenagehood. I was really interested in AI. Actually, there's, unfortunately, I can't find it anymore, but there used to be this GeoCities webpage where uh, very naively had laid out a plan for doing AI research. Um, I think I'm 11 or 12 years old at that point. Um, but I was lucky at McGill University to, uh, to be introduced to RL specifically uh, by working with the professor, Professor Doina Prekop, who is in Montreal, uh, who was teaching the AI class. And then uh, I really loved the idea of reinforcement learning. It made sense to me that AI should be about learning. And so from that point on, we worked together. I, I joined her lab to be an undergraduate research assistant um, did my master's with, uh, with Professor Prokop. And then after that, uh, I went to, uh, to the University of Alberta, where uh, Richard Sutton uh, was and is, and many other phenomenal researchers in RL. And so uh, really, sort of, it was accidental that I ran into RL, but I loved it, uh, you know, it was love at first sight. And, uh, and it, since then, it's been sort of just following uh, where RL is happening and, and what's, what's exciting in the field. So as many of our listeners will know, you've been involved in, in many of the important advances in, in RL research, and including, I'll just list a few here, co-authoring the DQN Nature paper that arguably started the Deep RL revolution, um, introducing the ALE, the Arcade Learning Environment, which has been a central RL benchmark and still is, and of course, distributional RL. 
Uh, so how much of this path would you say was like kind of planned in advance or did it involve a lot of um, exploration or luck? It's hard to separate luck from, from plan. Definitely, I didn't come into this thinking, you know, uh, I'm going to start my research and reinforcement learning uh, as an undergrad and then 11 years down the road or what is it, 15 years down the road, I'll, I'll have this distributional reinforcement learning idea. I'm very much someone who, who likes to, to think of opportunities as something to be taken and not taken. And I think in many cases, it's, it's a mix of uh, being in the right place at the right moment, but also challenging myself to be in those places. Um, and, you know, one way to think about it may be to avoid early local minima uh, and, and try to, to push the boundaries of what we know and, and challenge what other people think about the field. Um, so specifically, if I think about the distributional reinforcement learning, um, it's a great example for me of a project that, that simmered really for a very long time before, before we eventually put out the paper in 2017. It's still something ongoing now. Um, the project actually started very early in my time at DeepMind. Um, I was working at a time with um, my uh, Joel Vaness, who had been my PhD advisor actually at the University of Alberta. And he had this idea of predicting um, the probability distributions of random returns. And at the time, this seemed very strange and esoteric, and we worked on this, and we actually, uh, to this day, I think this is phenomenal work. We, we actually used a compression algorithm to do reinforcement learning. It's, it's a bit wild. And when we were done, there were actually a few open questions. We looked at this and we said, we have no idea how to deal with these problems, but it feels like we should work on them. And it took about three years to eventually get to distribution RL. And so there was no plan to get there, but the question was there, and, and when it felt like we had the right pieces in place, then we... Uh, then with other co-authors, we actually took on this problem. And so I really like to think of it as, you know, the, the, the work I'm most proud of is, is a buildup of experience rather than a single sort of uh, idea. So we've seen an explosion uh, in work building on the seminal DQN letter that you co-authored uh, in Nature in 2015. And uh, more variants seem to show up all the time on Archive almost every week. And Google Scholar says there's over 14,000 citations for that paper. So when you did that work, did you have a sense that uh, that you were creating this this whole new field? Right. It's pretty amazing the uh, the amount of interest and the, the revolution that uh, the DQN uh, algorithm created. It's worth pointing out, actually, that people had used neural networks before uh, with reinforcement learning, right? So dating back all the way to... Uh, Jerry Tesoro's uh, TD gammon was explicitly mm -hmm. using a network of sigmoid units to to learn to play backgammon. And um, when uh, when Andrew Ng and Peter Beal flew helicopters uh, in early and mid two thousands, they were also using neural networks as part of their their project. Mm -hmm. I think the big revolution with DQN um, was sort of taking this to the next level. And in fact. Um, Martin Ridmiller was a member of uh, the team who worked on this. He'd also been using neural networks uh, in similar context. But with Atari, we, we had an extra piece, which is we wanted the system to be uh, general purpose. And this was really a game changer, right? To say you have 60 games and you need to play all of these 60 games. And we'd struggled to come up with the right solution during my PhD to this problem. We could only think of heuristics. DQN was revolutionary because it said, here's one way you do it. Uh, in a very, very clean and simple manner. Now, you asked, did we know we were going to create this whole field? At the time, the paper was incredibly controversial because it 
it went against, I think, a lot of the things we thought were true or important in reinforcement learning. So uh, let me say it actually took me about two years to even think that this was an important result uh, in the sense that this is how we should do things from there on. <laughs> and there's a great anecdote for me. What changed my mind was the we had, uh, it happened that actually the, the Dikyun work we had done on uh, roughly 55 games uh, from the Atari 2600. But the the paper that I'd written during my PhD had a different set of games. And there was three games that hadn't been included in the DQN paper for various uh, engineering reasons. So I, I saw these games and I thought, well, here's my chance to prove to people that they're wrong about deep neural networks. And I'll, I'll run DQN on these three games. It will fail miserably. I will have, uh, you know, I'll, I'll collect my own human scores. And then, uh, you know, I'm exaggerating a little bit here. But effectively, uh, this is a real test set. And lo and behold, I trained DQ in these three games, and it beat me single-handedly on all three games. And I thought, that's it. There's just, there's just no going around this evidence. <laughs> so I think when, when David Silver introduced you at NeurIPS uh, 2020, he described your work on distributional RL as one of the most important innovations in RL to date. I'm paraphrasing there. Um, so I wonder, besides distributional RL, would you describe any other innovations since DQN as being um, very important to the theory and practice of RL on that level? Like what types of things might we consider fundamental advances versus more incremental improvements? I think there's been a lot of uh, both. Sometimes, you know, even things we might think of as incremental still have um still have long-term value because they get developed over multiple papers. Uh, and sometimes they're important, even though we haven't finished exploring them in some sense. So if I think about prioritized replay, which, uh, which is something actually we're, we're revisiting right now, I think prioritized replay has been an important piece in the puzzle. I don't think we fully understand it just yet. Um, certainly, I think a major uh, technical uh, achievement, or almost like a paradigm shift, is the idea of doing distributed uh, distributed computing and distributed reinforcement learning. Um, and the idea that if we have a simulator, we can now go and train or, or run hundreds, if not thousands of agents in parallel to collect this data and also distribute, of course, the computation, the learning part on multiple accelerators. Um, that's been fundamental um, in all projects where right now the only way we know how to solve these problems is by throwing a massive amount of compute at them, right? So it might bring down the training time down from years to a matter of weeks. And that's day and night for any kind of practical application. So DQN itself was, was relatively simple. And since then, complexity has gone up like quite a bit. If we look, for example, at Agent 57, um, which is also targeting ALE, um, you'd have to read a lot of papers to understand all the different components in Agent 57. So I wonder how you feel about where things are going in terms of figuring out what the key components are that are needed to do RL well? And is that process just kind of getting started or are we nearly there in terms of figuring out what that is? And, and, and what is there? How do we know when we arrive there? I think a challenge in knowing what we need and what we don't need is that we, as a research community, I think we need more tests uh, of the methods in new settings. Um, uh, an example I like when I think about this question in particular is the UCT algorithm that uh, that was effectively designed for search in large environments uh, and 
really has had its heyday in the game of computer Go. Um, because UCT is effectively a very fast search technique based on a very few simple principles. UCT is often thought of as it's a very simple idea that's very difficult to break in code. And I think in many ways, the state of reinforcement learning right now is almost the opposite of this, which is we have a lot of bells and whistles, and it's not clear that they're reliable or robust. Um, but this said, I think the pieces are there. Uh, we just need to, to figure out through more trial and error, maybe through more experimentation, which parts matter. So I think, I think we have most of the parts. And if I, if I look at our experience working with Loon on, uh, on flying uh, balloons with deep reinforcement learning, there we made the choice of keeping it simple. And it was a choice we had to make just because we were building everything from the ground up. And when you're building everything from the ground up, any sort of thing that you leave in the system that you haven't tried out might, uh, might cause you trouble down the road. So we see um, agents and algorithms getting more complex. Do you think that that diversity and complexity will continue in specialization? Or do you see things kind of unifying um, at some point? Like, it seems like there's so many different, almost like a family tree of RL agents and algorithms. Do you see that continuing to, to split or, or some kind of unification happening? I do think as, um, I don't think we'll see some kind of unification, um, but I think it's always been a challenge in reinforcement learning, given the, the vast diversity of problems that we want to bring, uh, that we want to use our algorithms on. Really, each of these problems maybe needs to be handled a bit differently. Uh, an analogy here is that if we think about computer vision and, say, natural language processing, these two things are, you know, fairly different perceptual spaces, but also the kind of problems that people look at are also pretty different. Continuous control and, let's say, Atari are not as distinct as these two things, but they're, they're still pretty distinct, right? And it might just not be possible to unify the two if really what we care about is top performance on one of these benchmarks. So this said, I think if, if we let go a little bit of the state-of-the-art, the desire to have state-of-the-art performance in a benchmark, and we focused more on will this do the job, then we would start unifying algorithms a bit more. So maybe related, um, like we see games like StarCraft uh, needing a lot more domain-specific structure in their agents, like we see in AlphaStar. And then with DQN, we had very simple monolithic agents um, that might not do well uh, in in without that structure. Should we expect monolithic agents uh, to be useful going forward or would they just maybe a phase? Or is it maybe because our, our function approximators aren't that good yet that we need uh, we need these, these more complex uh, agent designs and then in the future could maybe better function approximators allow us to fall back to monolithic designs again? I think it's interesting to also ask the question, why do we expect an agent to to be monolithic. And, and so let me try to unpack this a little bit here. If we look at DQN, DQN uh, was already an agent, what I would call an agent architecture, where one piece is the network, one piece is the learning rule, one piece is the replay buffer, one piece is the target network, one piece is how you select actions. Um, and so, so already I think DQN, I, I, I would actually call it an architecture more than, than a monolithic design. And I agree with you that... Uh, this seems to be to, to, to be a trend that's continued. I think it's actually very natural that uh, if we have a complex system with a lot of moving parts, uh, we might want to build specialized modules to deal with each of these parts. And it, it might not be possible to or 
to write down, if you will, a unifying equation that would unify all these parts in a very nice, elegant mathematical or algorithmic formulation. Think about an operating system, right? Nobody would expect an operating system to be monolithic, I think, in that respect. So t- speaking of function approximators, like neural networks have come a long way since since the original DQN. Um, do you think that we need, we'll get more progress from just from like tagging along with supervised learning and the improvements in, in neural networks and function approximators? I think we've seen uh, pretty impressive uh, gains in performance from using transformers, but it's not clear to me that the problems that supervised learning is addressing are the problems that RL needs to address. So in that sense, what I would love to see is more transformer-like things designed for reinforcement learning. And maybe, in fact, we saw a bit of a flurry of this early in the days of DQN and Atari, and we see a bit less of it now. I would say where deep learning or supervised learning has has assisted reinforcement learning is when the modalities look the same, right? If you have images as inputs, then you use a convolutional network or something like it to process these images. But if your images, if your inputs are, um, you know, a vector of atmospheric data, then maybe the convolutional network doesn't make sense anymore. So people talk about three types of ML, unsupervised, supervised, and reinforcement learning. And then it seems clear that reinforcement learning can subsume supervised learning just by treating action labels as, or actions as, as label predictions. I, I wonder, if do you think that anything could ever uh, subsume RL? Or would we ever th- always think of it as like the cherry on top, as Jan LeCun says? Or is that even a, a question that makes any sense? That... that um is, is RL a cherry on top? I think there's many models we we aren't even considering right now. Uh, a different way to think about this is why are we, why did we, do, first of all, you know, RL is, is uh, Rich Hutton would say RL is, is, a, is, a, uh, is a problem setting, not necessarily a solution. Um, and I think in that respect, if we just think of this, the class of problems we can, we can describe with RL, then uh, it's a pretty wide class. There are problems that don't fit in the paradigm of, say, a, a Markov decision process, right? Which assumes, which assumes that uh, effectively, given a state, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happened in the past. There's actually this framework called AIXI by Marcus Hutter, who who is an incredibly general framework. So it's good and interesting to ask the question: Why aren't we all using AIXI? Uh, that's a model that could subsume RL and the way that you're asking. And we don't use it, I think, because it's so general that it's very difficult to make progress. So maybe a different way to answer your question is, we'll, I think we will need a new model and we'll get to a new model once we understand the failings of the current model. The same way that for a while now we've understood that it's very difficult to learn from trial and error uh, to, to make decisions in a purely machine learning or supervised learning context. Hmm. So what would you say um, are the main bottlenecks to progress in, in RL right now? I would say that benchmarking is an incredible bottleneck. And actually, let me, let me elaborate a little bit on this. It's not so much the, the, the availability or inavailability of benchmarks, but rather we don't really have problems that I feel are fundamentally challenging us in new ways. I actually want to hark back to the previous question. We don't really have problems that are challenging uh, our use of reinforcement learning as a model for uh, how an agent interacts with its environment. And, uh, you know, why is that? I think in part it's because ever since deep reinforcement has come around, we've had a lot of interesting follow-up questions, and they're all incredibly important. But it's also that it might be a question of hardware, or it might be a question of computation, that we're 
we're uh, simply lacking the the inspiration, if you will, to uh, to go to the next step. You know, Ray Kurzweil often uh, talks about uh, S-shaped uh, progress, right? We we're the flat part of the progress curve, and for a while everything looks the same, and then there's this paradigm shift, and everything changes, and then we we are a new flat part. I definitely feel like we're in a flat part right now. And when somebody comes up with that next paradigm, then we'll see um, a massive upheaval and they'll unblock everything. Can you say anything about the relationship between empirical RL, theoretical RL, and and RL in neuroscience? Like, do they all inform each other or is there maybe more structure than that? How do you see those three things? They certainly inform each other. And for me personally, the way the way that uh, this plays out is that I, I love reading papers across the field and trying to understand the perspectives that these uh, these different subfields will take on the problem. Now, now your question is, you know, do they inform each other or do more than that? I think one challenge when you when you cross fields is to be able to to speak the same language and then to understand the problems or the challenges faced by by one of the subfields. Um, as somebody who's actually straddling theoretical reinforcement learning and empirical reinforcement learning, uh, I'm, first of all, I'm very grateful that my colleagues on both sides sort of seem to be very happy with, with, with this, uh, this straddling. Uh, but it does make it really difficult because we have to play catch up understanding both why do people working on the theory care about this specific question and how does it translate into a practical concern? Does it? And, and, and vice versa, right? People might, might work on a practical concern, which would be fairly easily addressed from a theoretical perspective. But in the end of the day, I think this is how we make progress, is by bringing new perspectives into our own problems. So you work on exploration. Um, how do you explain why exploration in RL is such a hard problem? Why is it so hard? I think there's a number of answers to this question. The Maybe the most important one is that we don't know, I don't think we actually know what we're looking for. Actually, from a theoretical perspective, exploration is really well understood. There's, there's still phenomenal work coming out in the space, but we, we I think we've identified the major uh, pieces of the puzzle, and we can derive algorithms and have sample complexity bounds that say, if you collect this much information, then then you're done. And so why why is that not enough? Why aren't we done from a practical perspective? Well, first of all, it's very difficult for theoretical results to go beyond a certain point, a certain level of, of, of precision. So they tend, for example, to have a worst-case analysis of a problem. And maybe the worst-case problems are just really, really hard, and we we don't encounter them in practical terms. The other aspect of this is it goes back to this, this modeling perspective, which is I don't think we really know what it means to explore in most scenarios that we actually care about, right? So so our our notion of what exploration means is, is really grounded in theory, which is collect enough data that you have the right, you can make the right decisions. But what if it's never possible to have enough data? You know, I think it's Jeff Bezos who likes to say that we should make decisions when we have about 70% of the available information, right? Um, that suggests that, you know, and, and this is more about business, of course, but that suggests that there's a lot of situations where we'll never have enough information, There'll always be this uncertainty, and maybe we need to think about exploration differently in that respect. Do you think humans are good at solving the exploration problem? Not in the sense that theoretical exploration would have it. Uh, I think humans are very good at having some heuristics. Actually, I'm going to say no. Humans are terrible at exploration. Um, 
<laughs> there's there's this great uh, example of uh, this is this is uh, this is taken from the I'll see if I can remember correctly now. This is uh, a famous athlete uh, at the Olympics that discovered the what's called the Fosbury flop. And the Fosbury flop, in a nutshell, was uh, this was this was for uh, this was for jumping over bars, uh, and it was a completely different a completely different way of jumping. So so running and then jumping and actually flopping over backwards to go over the high bar. Um, and, and, you know, it's a very simple mechanism. And once once that athlete discovered that, that jump, everybody started doing it because it made sense. And before then, nobody had thought about it. And so what does that tell us that you had generations of athletes uh, doing these high jumps and not discovering the Fosby flop? And and mm-hmm. what did it take to get there? And so, so I, I think... It, in many situations, when we find a good enough solution, we stick with it. And often exploration occurs because we see somebody do it better than we have been doing it. Or it occurs because we're sort of forced to explore, right? And uh, it's taken out of our hands. But when we have a chance, I think we actually were very poor at it. And uh, we saw on Twitter uh, an agent coming up with that with that jump in some kind of simulation. That's right. That's right. That was just a few days ago. That was actually a, a really fun moment to see this uh, to see this online. And it, exactly, I, I haven't had a chance to per, to peruse the, the whole details of this work, but uh, we would exactly imagine that how do you incentivize an agent, and what are the conditions in which it's going to be incentivized to say there's something you need to be looking for here that's better. On the other hand, the agent couldn't get injured as it tried thousands of variations on on, on jump styles. Exactly. I think that's actually a very important point that I, I wonder if some of the uh, some of our biases towards not exploring, it could be injury, it could be it could be time. It could be also that, uh, you know, we, we have other things in our mind that day. And so we're not in a mindset to try things out. We just want, you know, when I order from at a restaurant, uh, it's been a while now since I ordered a restaurant, but when I ordered a restaurant, I might stick with something I know just because, you know, this is I don't go out very often. And there's a risk to making the wrong choice. And so I might as well, maybe we're being myopic in some sense, right? That we are, uh, we're making choices that are immediately useful as opposed to optimizing for the long term. So going back to ALE, when you first did the ALE paper, uh, how did you think about when it might be solved? Or was early DQN already um, effective on ALE at that point? So by early DQN, uh, I, I don't know if you mean the, um, the very early, mm-hmm. uh, the work I did during my PhD. Is that right? Well, there was the 2013 variant. I see. Um, so the ALE, maybe I can actually uh, digress very quickly here. So the the ALE actually was uh, designed uh, all the way back to 2008, although it took a few years to get it off the ground. Uh, so for me, the earliest experiments with uh, playing Atari games go back even before DQN to the work uh, I did during my PhD and also a master's student did uh, during their master's, Yevarnadaf. And so these methods were, were fairly primitive. And what they did is they did actually what we knew how to do before. So speaking of exploration, we were stuck in a certain way of doing things. We, we would write down a program that would extract a large number of features from, uh, from the image. And we called these domain-independent features because they had to be a, good, a program that could work for uh, all 60 games. And then the agent would learn from these features. And uh, these... Actually, the learner learned on some of these games, but it also performed quite poorly on other games and was quite slow at times. So to answer your question, how long did we think it would take to to get to where we got? 
let's say in 2013 when we published the Arcade uh, Learning Environment paper, we thought it was five to ten years before we would make significant progress uh, on the basis that we didn't know how to make these features. And it turns out we were completely wrong, and it, the answer was, well, you know, throw a convolutional neural network at it and let it do its magic. So um, ALE has continued uh, to be used to this day, and so would you consider ALE still unsolved uh, by today's generations of agents, or or how will we know when ALE is, is really outgrown? And any guess on, on when that, that might happen? How long will it stay relevant? Right, so the, the term unsolved is always tricky because... I've used this the, the, the label, label solved in the context of, for example, checkers. So when Jonathan Schaefer uh, at the University of Alberta and, and, and his team um, found, um, basically solved checkers and said, uh, if you play optimally from the first position in checkers, it's a draw. Um, that, would, that is what I would call solved. Mm. Um, when we look at Atari, and it's the same thing for Go, really, and the, the game is so large that we're not at that point where we can say this is the optimal play in the sense that it will give you the optimal rate of reward. But this said, I think, you know, in a different sense, we're very close to saying, well, we, we have superhuman players, so aren't we done? Um, so I think in that sense, the ALE is, is solved. We have algorithms for creating policies that, that do achieve things that, uh, you know, in many of these games are beyond humans. There's actually a few games for various reasons that are really hard to play on the keyboard, and humans do pretty poorly. Uh, Breakout is one of them. Uh, and, and, you know, you see these agents, actually, in this case, they are finishing the level because there's a bug where the Atari cartridge will crash after level two. Uh, so these, I suppose, we would call almost solved. But I think the real value of a benchmark is not so much in being solved as much as how it inspires us and challenges us. And uh, one place where it's very clear we haven't done this is we haven't really demonstrated something we thought we would be able to do much more quickly when we started working on this, demonstrated the, the ability of an agent to learn quickly and from few experiments. Uh, and as, there's been actually a lot of interesting work in model-based RL and trying to get there, but I don't think we're, not, we're quite there. Uh, Brendan Lake had a great paper in 2016 where they made that point much better than I'm making it right now, where they said, let's actually look at human uh, human agents and, and ask the question, how long does it take humans to learn to play a game like Breakout or Frostbite? And we see a learning curve within episodes, right? It's the third playthrough and you're already twice as good as you were in the first playthrough. Mm -hmm. We're nowhere near this with RL today. So the original Atari games themselves came out in, I think, 1977. That's 44 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the RL community is kind of still working on them with ALE. Um, do you think that games will always be like far ahead of our ability to to learn strong agents to play them? That's right. So I, I'm guessing here you mean by games that there are new games being created that are more challenging. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. And uh, the answer to this, I suppose, is, is multifaceted. But uh, actually, let's look at the games that people are playing today. You know, my partner and I have been playing a lot of Overcooked lately. And in many ways, Overcooked is a lot of simpler game than some games we saw in the 1990s or the early 2000s. So I don't think games are necessarily getting more complex, but you're right that maybe there's something special about Atari that we've lost since. Um, Atari games were games that came out of the arcade cabinet, the, the arcades, and, and, and you know they had to be implemented in an arcade cabinet, and they, they were all designed for the most part, actually not all of them, but all, most, almost all of them were designed to be fast, to be fast-paced and to, to give the player continuous reward, right? You're playing Space Invaders and you have to keep getting score and increasing your score. And 
The game has to end soon so that the arcade cabinet can collect more quarters. That's something very special, and even with the NES, we don't see this anymore, and even less so with, with later platforms. And, you know, you have these beautiful open-ended games today that, that just are completely different. Minecraft is a great example of this. So maybe, maybe the video games developers will keep coming up with new ways of thinking about games that are more complicated. But I think, I think we, you know, we have a good handle on certain kinds of games. Maybe more importantly, I think games are just one reflection of, of our lives. And what's more likely to happen is as we understand better how to apply RL in, in a real-life context, then games will look easier too, right? As opposed to, to the way we've taken now, which is ignore that an entire game is really uh, a depiction, a very crude depiction of a, a real life. You know, Pong is a game of tennis in some sense. Uh, and so once we've cracked out the real-life scenarios a bit better, then I think it'll be easier to play these games. And then, I guess related, is there? do you see a natural successor to ALE? Or is the is the successor like a a larger set of benchmarks? Like, would it make sense to collect some games from more recent times into a new benchmark? Or, or I guess you partly answered that that the challenges might be of a different kind. Right. Exactly. I I don't think I don't think that the bigger ALE is the solution. We've seen some incredible work in the RL community trying to to develop these new benchmarks. Uh, if I think about OpenAI, for example, OpenAI has been working hard at this for the last, almost since their inception. They, they, they started with Jim. Uh, they looked at Universe for a little while. Uh, you know, there's been ProcGen, that is a procedurally generated uh, benchmark that came out recently. And all of these are challenging the field in their own way. But it's related to your question is, again, which part of games do we still need to figure out? And I think one thing that Atari did that benchmarks previously hadn't done is to say you really have to address the perceptual challenge how do you map images to actions right uh, the domains we had before for the most part let's say except for sort of special case applications uh were much more you know if you think about mountain car where you have a vector of two it's it's two real values and you've got to make a decision based on these two real values or a lot of grid worlds we have a lot of grid worlds in reinforcement learning where everything is effectively you could draw it on a piece of paper so when we look at more games or bigger games, we're just really saying, let's keep the perceptual component and, you know, crank up the volume to 11. But that's not, to me, that's not really changing the, the fundamental question. Now, the more interesting question, I think, is when games get more complicated. And again, what does it mean to play Minecraft? That's a very different question than playing Palm. But maybe there's other ways that we can ask this question, which is why is Minecraft an interesting problem in the first place? And what is the challenge that it's trying to to make us face. And I think we don't really know, we don't really have a good answer to this question, which is why we haven't seen a natural successor to the ALE just yet. And maybe in some sense, we've seen a fragmentation of the field into multiple benchmarks. So we had your PhD advisee, Dr. Marlos Machado on recently, and he spoke about the Loon controller, which you both worked on. Uh, and we'll have links to his talks on the episode page at talkrl.com. And we will also have a link to your talk uh, that you gave to the University of Maryland recently, where you <laughs> went into detail on this work. So, I mean, we, we have limited time here, so I'm not going to ask you to, um, to repeat, uh, you know, all the very interesting uh, things that you said in that talk. And I, I recommend listeners check out the, the, the Machado episode and his talk and, and your talk. But could you remind us of the overall goal uh, of the Loon project and, and of the controller itself? For sure. So Loon... Uh is a subsidiary of uh, Alphabet that uh, that uh, is now winding down, unfortunately, but was tasked with developing basically 
balloons, giant balloons that could fly in the stratosphere. And uh, one of their missions uh, is to deliver internet connectivity to, uh, to regions where that might be difficult uh, for various uh, infrastructure reasons. And so as, uh, as part of this challenge, the, the balloons that are being flown are what we would call underactuated. Um, effectively, one of these balloons is floating in a stratosphere about 20 kilometers high in the air. And, um, and the only things that it can do is it can go up, down, or maintain its altitude. And so if you want to get from point A to point B, what you have to do is you have to catch winds going in the right direction. And that's, as you can imagine, it's really complicated when you're flying in this, in this messy, chaotic wind field in the stratosphere. So what we did is we actually used reinforcement learning to learn a, a flight controller that could do all of this uh, in simulation and then deploy that reinforcement learning controller to, to fly the balloons. Uh, and and we, actually, we actually saw these balloons deployed, for example, over Kenya. Uh, this was a massive success for us to, this maybe in January we could go to Flight Radar, the website, and actually on the website see the flight paths of a deep RL agent over Kenya. This was magical for me. I understand it performed really well. And did you expect that in the beginning? Or were there points where you had some doubts that this was going to work out well? I don't think I had any doubts in the sense that the way that the CTO of Lou and Sal Candido uh, pitched the project to me, and also a colleague of my, a colleague of ours, James Davidson, who was uh, involved very early in the project, it was very clear that this was a perfect fit for reinforcement learning because of this underactuated nature where really we thought no other controller is really going to be able to do as well here. And both a perfect fit in terms of the model, but also the tools that we had available to us. So, uh, you know, discrete, small number of discrete actions. The, the analogy is not perfect, but really this looked like Atari in the stratosphere. And so to me, that made sense that this is what we should try to do. And, and indeed, you know, the, the, the way we went about this is not quite Atari, but we try to follow the pattern of the AlphaGo project of, of uh, you know, some choices are less important, some design choices are less important, so how big the network, what kind of training, and, and focus on the right choices. And I think that paid off. So I, I didn't have a doubt that this would work. I was surprised at how quickly we got there. So was it obvious to you right away, it sounds like it was, that you would use model-free, off-policy, distributional RL for this? Like, was that very clear from, you, from the get-go, or did you ever take any deliberation to, to decide to, to go with that? We did some experiments very early on, with actor-critic methods, which I suppose would be model-free but value-based and maybe a bit less off-policy. I was actually hoping, following this AlphaGo pattern, that we could use something like, like AlphaGo did, which is tree search with value estimates. And this is actually what, what I learned working with Loon, which is you have to understand the problem, and the problem will dictate some of your solutions. In this case, the simulator is pretty slow, and trying to do any kind of search with the simulator is really hard. We can do search, but it's with the simulator of the simulator, and that's not ideal. So model-free just emerged as the thing we could do well, and it also happened to be the really the only thing we could do. Uh, the distributional RL part, I think the project would have worked well without it, but it just made sense because we knew it so well, we could control it and, and guarantee quality of the process. Were you pretty confident that the simulator was going to be good enough to get the results you needed, and there wouldn't be like a big sim-to-real gap, or, or was that not a risk? I wasn't confident at all, and I think uh, Marlos would say the same. We were incredibly surprised when the balloon flew its first flight in July 2019 <laughs> that that it, it flew so well. Um, 
I used to have Marlos's words on record uh, about this. Let's let's say that he he was uh, quite surprised. The thing, so you, you used the word risk, and in some sense, we weren't too concerned about risk because when you fly one of these balloons, there's a lot of safety layers. Of course, that you know this is a real system, uh, and I think this is something that sometimes RL researchers forget. When you implement reinforcement learning in a real application, uh, the RL is just one part of a very large system, and so you know down to the engineer looking at the balloon and asking the question, if that balloon does something fishy, I'll, I'll take control. Uh, so the risk wasn't there, but the positive results was a surprise uh, for sure. So if I understood the reward um, is entirely about staying within that designated circle, uh, is, is that right? And there was a bit of shaping outside the circle? Did, 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 that, uh, did, did that reward function take some, some deliberation or was that pretty obvious to you? Exactly. So the reward function, maybe to, to restate it, is if you're within 50 kilometers of the station that you want the station keep at, then you uh, you receive a reward of plus one. So it's very classic, right? We, we try to keep things simple. Zero if you're not in the circle and one otherwise. We found it useful to add a bit of shaping outside the, the region. That's an artifact. We really didn't need it to get good performance, but it, it helped a little bit. There's an, another component, which is that we discourage power usage. And this was done because power, when you're flying a balloon, is actually, of course, at a premium. The balloon is solar-powered. Um, and that was necessary. So just to get technical for a second, it's a multiplicative power penalty where we shrink the reward on the basis of uh, using power. Did it take a lot of tuning? Not really. I think it's funny that early on we actually tuned it quite a bit, but it was sort of uh, moving the wrong piece. The reason why things weren't working is because we didn't have the right distributed training code. Once we fixed the distributed training code, we, we realized the reward function didn't actually matter that much. The reason for this, the way I like to encapsulate this is when you're formulating a, a problem as a reinforcement link problem, you don't want to tell the agent how to do it. You want to tell it what success is. And for us, success is one within the, the region. So that's what we should go for, really. Cool. Okay. So you, you mentioned how magical it was. I can't imagine what it must have felt like. Um, after so much of your work um, really combined in a, in a, in over the years uh, to come up with this result in, in terms of uh, DQN, the distributional work you've done, and, and, uh, and the whole field partly driven by ALE as a benchmark. So did you, did you see this as, a, as kind of one of the highlights of, of your career? Like, how, what did it mean to you to see that? Well, uh, in terms of, and you know, is it a highlight of my career? I hope so. It's hard to know. Uh, I can't judge of the future just yet. But uh, what, what was so great for me here is to, to see, uh, as you say, on a problem that nobody had really considered before, that we could, uh, we could bring the tools we knew so well to, uh, to great success. So I, let me break it down a little bit here. I think the most exciting thing to us was just the fact that RL worked in that setting. Forget about good performance, forget about uh, beating uh, state-of-the-art, uh, even though the controller that Loon already had was really, really powerful and tuned you know, for, for production capabilities. Uh, just the fact that it worked was pretty impressive. And the reason for this is, you know, reinforcement learning in its core is a, just a handful of equations. And maybe, you know, now with the, an architecture thrown on top and to say this thing starts its life, if you want to call it that, knowing nothing about balloons and just by trial and error gets to a point where it's now flying a balloon very, very well. That is just, 
just 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 amazing, right? So you know, maybe making a parenthesis here, this is actually what got me into reinforcement learning. I didn't mention this at the beginning. Uh, my very first project was actually applying, redoing Jerry Tesoro's work, applying neural networks to backgammon. Mm. And uh, this was an eye-opening moment to me. I I knew about RL. I'd read, you know, I'd read a textbook. I'd taken a Professor Prokop's class. And I wrote down this bagam and program, and because I love to tinker with with things, I also wrote an interface so I could play against the, the player. And I think one or two months within my uh, my internship, I trained a program with a neural network, and it beat me. And you know, I'm not a bad backgammon <laughs> player, and it beat me. And I thought, this is amazing. You know, this is this is a collection of numbers that's beating me at uh, at a game that matters to me. So I think that's generally, generally speaking, the feeling we've had with the Loon project uh, in general. Awesome. Okay, so moving to distributional RL, you, you've shown uh, you've shown everyone how effective distributional RL is. Uh, do you think that we should be learning distributions even in supervised learning, or is there something very specific about value functions that makes learning distributions for them especially helpful? I think so. I actually have a good colleague of mine, Martha White, at the University of Alberta, actually has a paper where she looked at this question. Specifically, should we, should we think of using uh, the classification loss um, in, in context where we're doing regression, which is in some sense sort of the abstract version of the, the question you're asking. I do think that in reinforcement learning, there's something a little bit more interesting that happens, and that's because a lot of the distributions that we encounter are a lot more varied, right? So... In both cases, we're mapping inputs, maybe images or, or vectors, to outputs. And in the supervised learning, the outputs are targets, and we don't really expect the distribution to be too complicated. Maybe that's wrong, right? Maybe we, we should change our, our, our view on this. When we think about return distributions, they're really more elaborate, right? We've seen this when we, when we look at uh, return distributions coming out of Atari. For example, we have these visualizations in the 2017 work, uh, with space invaders. We've seen this, uh, colleagues of mine have seen this in continuous control tasks. Uh, the analogy that, uh, that I like to use here is you can think of, of RL, or classic RL, as uh, you know, taking a photograph of the world. There's the real interactions that the agent has with environments, and the expected value is a bit like a black and white photograph. And, and what distributional RL gives you is a color version of that same photograph. It really shows you all the details that you, you would otherwise be missing out on. I don't think we even know yet what to do with these details, but now we have a color, a color you know, we have color photography. What are we going to do with it? So in terms of distributional agents um, for discrete off-policy, I guess, model-free RL, we've seen... Um, a number of different ways of present of representing uh, the value function distribution. So you've shown C fifty one, and then there's quantile regression and I, IQN implicit quantile networks, and then F, FQF came came along. I, I'm wondering, is the problem of how to represent these distributions uh, solved now, or or are there some open questions there still? I guess there's always open questions, and it's only a question of how deep do you want to go, or how precise do you want to be. In the context of distributional reinforcement, like specifically, I guess you're asking about the part I would call the representation. How do we describe the uh, the probability distribution? How do we operate in that probability distribution? I don't think we have a perfect algorithm. The uh, A lot of the field is focused on understanding a little bit better how to make algorithms that are 
based on, on you know the right loss functions and the, the right uh, coupling the right representation with the right loss function. But uh, maybe the answer to the question "Are we done?" depends on what we want to do with the with these algorithms. If, for example, we want to actually, we know that if we want to maximize expectation, we we really only need to predict the expectation. Except we know that predicting distribution has this funny effect where we 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 get more stable behavior, and that we don't really understand. But if instead of maximizing expectation, now we want to be to have risk sensitive behavior, you know, maybe uh, I I I don't want to shave off thirty seconds of my commute if it means that there's a fifty percent chance that I'll miss my turn. For those kinds of questions, I think we don't have a good answer on how to do distributional RL just yet. I really enjoyed your Kaida talk in, in November 2020 uh, on distributional RL. That was a tour of distributional reinforcement learning. Uh, and again, we'll have a link to that on the episode page. But in this talk, you mentioned that there's some evidence for TD learning and also distributional value functions in the brain. Uh, is that right? And, and was that part of your inspiration at all for focusing on distributional RL? It wasn't actually. The evidence, as far as I understand, came out after uh, we'd done the original work. Um, but it's been a real thrill to see to see uh, the neuroscience community pick up on this and be quite curious to try to understand this. Uh, you know, in some sense, it makes sense that if you can learn it and it's relevant to behavior, that the brain should be learning it. So, and then you said in that talk, and I'm paraphrasing, um, you said something like the methods use uh, stationary policies for fixed worlds. And then in the real world, it doesn't really make sense to react in a fixed way. Could you help us understand maybe what you meant by that? Were you talking about exploration or ensuring sensible responses to new observations or continual learning or, or maybe something else? I suppose that's a pretty cryptic comment that I made during the talk. My feeling here is that um, maybe the way I like to describe this is that most, uh, most of our interactions are one-offs. You know, I'll go to a restaurant once, or I'll go on vacation to a remote location once. And when we use reinforcement learning, the, the paradigm we're in is one of repeated trial and error, right? I've done the same things thousands of times. So to me, there's a bit of a disconnect here between how reality proceeds and the framework that we're operating in. Uh, so I see this as something that we maybe we need to address going forward. So I want to ask you about something you said on Twitter. Uh, I follow your Twitter, and I, I encourage uh, listeners to to check out um, Professor Belmer's uh, Twitter account. Uh, so you said uh, you said the, the the RL of the future is not an algorithm in the TCS sense. Uh, we think of algorithm as the equations for learning the policy. That's probably too narrow. Instead, we need to think agent architectures understand the relation between equations and non-equations. Can you say anything more about that in terms of what do you mean by the non-equation part? So I guess that's also another cryptic comment. Um, we talked about agent architectures before. The the I think actually some of these these ideas we've talked about today. The fact that reinforcement learning at the end of the day gives us a model. And uh, if I go back, in fact, and read uh, my colleague uh, Gregory Noyes' point, he was saying maybe we need the right RL algorithms. You know, uh, can we, re you know, can we start unifying things, for example, or can we, can we come up with the right learning rule? And my response to this is maybe we, maybe we just need to change the model. And the non-equations here are all the things that are not modeled or, or don't really fit in that neat mathematical framework. I think there's a lot that we don't understand that doesn't fit in the uh, mold of RL that, uh, that is worth revisiting. 
Cool. And then briefly, I was hoping to ask you about a paper you co-authored, Hyperbolic Discounting and Learning Over Multiple Horizons. Uh, that's Fetus et al. 2019. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so far, most work seems to use a fixed gamma discount for a fixed horizon. Um, and, and this paper looks at, I guess, multiple horizons. Um, but do you think like ALE led us to focus on, on MDPs with a very certain range of horizons or, or what type of environments might benefit from, from these multiple horizons and, and, and maybe hyperbolic discounting? Totally. I, I don't think anybody's have actually made, ever made that remark before, but certainly the nature of Atari games means that for the vast majority, they, they take place at a certain uh, temporal resolution, if you will, right? You're playing at the arcade, and you uh, you have to respond. You know, every half second, you have to do something important, and and maybe every three seconds, you receive a point for doing something important. And so, this is why, in fact, we've been able to use a fairly constant discount factor across the uh, the entire ALE. Now, this said, there have been domains, for example, Dota Two uh, that OpenAI worked on, where they use a much larger discount factor. I think it's in uh, you know, tens of thousands of equivalent steps in terms of the equivalent horizon. Uh, this would be a hundred times bigger than Atari, or maybe even a thousand times bigger. Um, I think the reason why, I suppose, you know, what kind of environments would benefit from hyperbolic discounting or multiple horizons, um, I think as we move towards more naturalistic environments and less game-like environments, we'll see more of this. Um, I, see we, I think we see plenty of examples of problems where you know, what matters more is, is to get a vague idea of the future. Maybe what we haven't figured out is why hyperbolic discounting would be better in that context. Is there truly a reason to be hyperbolic? One theory that I love is that uh, that we're bounded agents, bounded uh, rationality agents, and so we have to make some choices on the basis of, you know, finite data and a constantly changing worlds, and hyperbolic discounting is maybe one solution to this problem. Can you say a bit about your uh, your current research interests and uh, types of things your, your students are working on uh, these days? I think we're looking at a lot of different directions. And in part, that's, uh, that's a consequence of maybe a broad interest on my end. And also feeling that in looking for that next paradigm shift, we do have to keep an open mind that we won't get our next big breakthrough uh, just by changing the Q-learning into a new version of Q-learning. Um, so some of the directions we're excited about is uh, again in a space of representation learning, trying to understand, trying to understand how do we describe more complex phenomena. Right now, in some sense, we, we've been tied to the success of DQN that we the only real way we know how to build representations is to uh, to do deep learning and let the magic happen. And while that's good, it's it's a little bit it's a little bit unsatisfying that we can't go deeper and uh, and understand this better. Another place where we've been doing some work that uh, I'm quite excited, I think is going to come out quite soon, is to revisit benchmarking. Again, one way to challenge ourselves is to understand how we design good benchmarks and steady benchmarks. And uh, and so that what we've been finding, in fact, is, is, is a little bit that a lot of the progress that we're making in the field sometimes is maybe stationary and not much as uh, changing. Uh, so this is some of the work that we've been working on lately. And then besides your, your own work and your group's work, uh, are there things happening in, in RL uh, lately that you're, that you're pretty excited about? I think from an applications perspective, offline RL is going to be a game changer. I, you know, it used to be called batch RL, so it's not a new problem. Uh, but it, 
we, we see it, for example, when we move from video games where we have a simulator to robotics where we, we don't, we need to understand how to learn from a fixed set of data. You know, really what supervised learning does so well, reinforcement learning really struggles with. So that I'm very excited. I think it's going to come in quite soon. I'm very excited to see where we can take things. I also love the work that's going on in model-based RL. I think it's it's addressing an important question of how do we deal with counterfactuals, the fact that many things that arise around us we might not have been exposed to before. I think last but not least, I'm also excited to see what neuroscience can contribute to reinforcement learning, because whenever I pick up a neuroscience paper, I see an incredible amount of interesting phenomena that we're completely ignoring. So, Professor Belmer, I can't really explain to you how much this uh, episode meant to me. I've uh, been reading your name in the literature for, for years. Uh, I've been a big fan. And if you if anyone would have told me that I would have a chance to interview you uh, in this podcast when I started in 2019, I, I'd not, I probably would not have believed them. So, so I want to thank you um, so much for sharing your, your time and your insight with me in the TalkRL community today. Thank you, Professor Belmer. And the same to you. Thank you. This has been a fantastic uh, opportunity. Notes and links for this episode are at talkrl.com. If you like this show, I need your support. You can help in a few ways. One, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Subscriptions make a big difference. Two, follow us on Twitter at TalkRLPodcast. We love retweets. Three, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you don't think we deserve five stars, let us know on Twitter what we could do better. Thank you.